Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Here's the other thing. Uh, I think one of the real enemies of change that lots of leaders confront is just indifference. Yeah. Like, you can't get people to care if they don't want to. That's right. Yeah. So how do you, how do you, when you can't insist, how, how do you encourage ethical behaviour? When And I'm, I'm one of the standard answers is, well, you have more laws, you have more regulations, you have more rules, and then you punish any breach. Great to be back with you for another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. We are loving having Leadership Victoria as our current sponsor too. Folks I've met who really impress me often have one thing in common. They've done a Leadership Victoria program at some stage, most likely the Williamson program. Of course, Williamson is just one of their amazing suite of programs and courses, and you should check them all out in the link below in our show notes to learn more about their fine offerings and how you can develop into a really great purposeful leader too. To do this, just head to www.leadershipvictoria.org slash humans dash of dash purpose. That's also in the show notes. Be one of the first to head to this page and you'll get a copy of the new book from the Kansas Leadership Center, When Everyone Leads, thanks to the kind folk at Leadership Victoria. When Everyone Leads was a number one new business release on Amazon during launch week and is a fantastic read. This week, I'm chuffed to bring you my conversation with Chris Couture who is the leader in residence at Leadership Victoria. If you've ever attended a Leadership Victoria program, event or dinner, you are likely to have had the pleasure to hear from Chris and absorb absorb her leadership wisdom. Chris is, of course, a Williamson Program alumnus from 1994, and she's had an incredible career to date. More recently, she's worked with three Royal Commissions, the Bushfires Royal Commission, the Royal Commission into Family Violence, and the Royal Commission into Victoria's Mental Health System. And in each instance, she's continued to work with communities and agencies implementing subsequent reforms. Chris has had first-hand experience of how difficult, often unwelcome and challenging events affect people's lives, and what adaptation requires of leaders at all levels. Her consultation methods are now considered best practice. She routinely works as a strategist with government departments, local councils and leadership teams and with community and not-for-profit groups and serves on key government expert panels. I can't tell you how much I got personally from spending time with Chris. She's patient, a terrific active listener, a thoughtful speaker and someone who thrives at being reflective and taking her time to make sense and articulate her insights on the complex world we live in. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris as much as I did. Well, I'm so thrilled to be here with you, Chris. Thanks for coming in today. <laughs> nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm glad you found parking. Uh, uh, yes, I've left it idling, so it's probably just working its way around the block on its own. <laughs> it's not a self-driving automated car, is it? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thrilled we can make this happen. This is, of course, um, a pleasure to connect with you. Maybe a good place to start because this has caught my fascination as I was doing a bit of research on you, your work in LV. What is a leader in residence and why um, does that role exist? So the original concept came about uh, from the arts where you have an artist in residence uh, 
So what that's meant for me is that since I did the Williamson Community Leadership Program, I've probably had no period where my association with LV has been broken in any way. Continuous relationship. Absolutely. So it's a bit Hotel California, but it's <laughs> but it's also meant that um, it's really changed my life in terms of thinking about leadership. But so leader in residence, uh, I present to most of the programs, certainly the Williamson Community Leadership Program. Uh, I'm kind of on call, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it also means that um, I can contribute to the design of some of the other programs at LV's run over the years. So uh, I guess it is my pro bono voluntary part of the work that I do. Uh, and it's a love affair, if that makes sense, because yeah. um, there's a little bit of selfishness about it because I continue to grow and learn as a leader in residence, but it just means that I can keep doing some of the things that I think are incredibly important. And in a role where I've got a Pretty um pretty grand title, so yeah, <laughs> quite like all of that. So, but um no, that's that's basically how it's come about. And for some reason, I they haven't it hasn't occurred to them to to sack me. So it's, <laughs> I'm still there. <laughs> well, I I love it. I think it might be one of the best titles I've seen in recent times because I just imagine it's hot. Yeah, it's cool. yeah. I imagine somebody sort of sitting up in a the high chair, kind of pondering and sort of thinking about all the, the hard <laughs> topics and then giving advice as needed. What what's the genesis of that role for LV? And what, why do you think LV thought that was important? I mean, it makes sense to me as a Williamson graduate, but curious to get your take. So uh, Gerald Rector, who was the uh, the CEO at the time, had come from the arts. And so what she basically did was lift that model and insert it into LV. And the idea of having someone who is both uh, from inside the programs, but also from outside the programs and continue to be able to refresh and learn and bring about change, but never stray too far away from the original values seems to have been valuable for the group. So that sort of level of continuity, yeah. I think, has been a valuable part of the role. Absolutely. And it's mm. so interesting because I think you you sort of saying before that um, I did notice that my only other example of where that title exists was at Vic Health, yeah. which Gerald yep. was of CEO. Course. So yep. there you go. Fantastic. So starting with um, one that's sort of been on my mind also, um, obviously a key topic today is leadership. Um, leadership, oh, look, it can be, um, I think we see it in action, but at times it can seem somewhat amorphous. So keen to get a sense from you as to what leadership feels like for you today as a concept, um, as a notion, as an activity, maybe versus what you thought of leadership before you joined um, LV. Okay. So I guess when I did the Williamson Community Leadership Program, I was a public servant. Uh, and the traditional or the typical leadership pathway would have been uh, hierarchy, Ambition, climb the ladder, step after step, bigger step each time, uh, progress where the reward was, I guess, professional power and a bit more money mm. and a grander title. And that was the, that was the conventional model that yep. uh, I guess I grew up through. Uh, when you're really grown up, you become a CEO. So I did that. And then when I got to be a CEO of a statutory authority, I thought, uh, is that all there is? But any, but anyway, so that, that was the conventional pathway. And, of course, um, uh, Leadership Victoria, the Williamson program, was a jolt in discovery that leadership in lots of ways is not about the organisation that's behind you or the structure or the hierarchy or permission from the boss, but that you can lead uh, in so many ways outside of an organisation that it's about you and at a really simple level, though there are about you know forty billion definitions of leadership, about gathering others around an idea, 
and leading them to action. Mm. And that's much more than insistence or coercion or obligation or compliance. It's much more about influence and persuasion mm. and trying to gather people around. And, and these days it's so much around diversity and difference and how you bring different ways of seeing around a problem or an idea or a challenge. So I guess I moved from that concept that you were describing earlier, which was the kind of guru in a big chair at the top of the hill, <laughs> through to um, uh, being not, being none of those things, and in fact coming into leadership conversations now uh, with a position that I know less rather than I know more, because that means that I can listen without judging and seeing if I can bring a group of people around an issue or a problem or a challenge without having a preconceived idea of what that ought to be. It's so different, isn't it? I mean, with the way you were talking about the public service, I can certainly relate to my brief um, deliance there. I spent a couple of years in the in the VPS, and it was so like that. It was just sort of about rank, hierarchy, mm. and climbing the ladder. And hopefully, you make it to director pretty soon. Um, you've got a bit of security, yep. and then very. Um, the hierarchical nature of leadership, which was quite militaristic, was just so different to what I thought um, authentic leadership might look like, where it really is about um, can you bring others and coalesce them around an idea or a vision for change, and then will you, will they join you on that journey? And it's your job to kind of bring them on that journey. Well, and when they don't have to. Yeah. See, that's the, that's one of the big differences yes. between yeah. leadership inside an organisation or a strict hierarchy yeah. versus this other form of leadership that I'm talking about, mm. which is all about voluntary support Hmm. and how you go about getting people to support you when they don't have to. So that's a very different form of, um, I'm going to say, leadership training. Hmm. I suppose that that hierarchical model, the more military model that you're described, is that everybody knows their place Mm -hmm. and they they know that when there's an issue, you look up because there'll be somebody there that'll tell you what to do and how to go about doing it. This other form of leadership is much more untethered. It's not about having a particular model that you roll out and apply. Mm. For me, it's much more about being in the company of people who are gathered around or want to gather around a particular issue or problem and try to solve it amongst each other, Mm. which is a very, very different model. So when you're talking about leadership training or development, uh, these are not I guess there's no no one goes about training or or developing that kind of leadership, because as I say, it is all voluntary. You can't compel people to follow you in yeah. this in community leadership. I think the way it sort of ends up cascading down in sort of more hierarchical structures is you learn how to lead from the person directly above you only, Correct. and through their disciplinary kind of um, downstream sort of wishes or kind of recriminations, and it's it's. Um, it's quite interesting to hear you speak about it because I think a lot about sort of um, old power and new power and sort mm. of um, the the divorcement in a way or the separation uh, between the concepts of power and leadership. I wonder what you thought about that. Well, it's interesting because I used to think that my form of leadership back there in that hierarchical model had to be about power that I gained because of seniority mm. and years served and the credentials that I had through my university education. So my degrees are all in education. So I thought, well, that's what it's about. And I've got to keep impressing people on an interview panel and I've got to look up and I've got to, um, I guess, earn their respect and support. So I get my leadership through an interview and then I go to the next position and thereafter. And I perpetuated that as well because I thought that's what the model is. Now, I'm not necessarily criticising that model. Mm. I'm just saying that I think these days issues and problems have become so complex and challenging. There isn't one organisation or one agency or one group of people who have got all the answers. So it's much more about 
collaboration and climbing down out mm. of position so that you don't act as if you've got all the answers, mm. but you're listening very carefully to see whether or not you can build, uh, this is a bit cliched, but a, a better world through the cooperation of others. And cooperation is a is a given thing. It's mm. a gifted thing rather than an assumed thing. Yeah, I, I love hearing that. And and I think sort of that that idea of um, some of the concepts that come out of the Williamson program in LV, sort of around knowing, understanding the temperature of a situation, holding space. Right. Um, the whole year was just so much about how to um, behave or how to understand the systems happening around you and your influence on those systems and managing yourself rather than directly trying mm. to exert any specific tactics to to gain power, which I thought was just, for me, when I looked at the program, I thought, oh, okay, well, this is probably going to teach me, um, what do I need to do to be an executive leader? Well, it's just so much more than that, isn't it? It's how you think about yourself. It's how you kind of think about others. And it's also... Um I mean, what it taught me, or a number of things that it taught me, was that I think I had achieved some level of leadership because of my technical competency, that I'd, I'd gardened up capabilities and credentials and skills. And then after a while, realised that, particularly through Williamson, that this was much more about uh, people and about relationships and about, um, I guess, how you cultivate cooperation rather than assume it. So it taught me a lot about the value of networks beyond the public service. It taught me how... Uh, not to assume that I'm any kind of hero, but I'm also not alone in the work that I do. Um, it taught me a lot more about listening to understand rather than judge. Mm. It, it's sort of something I've become quite obsessed about, and I try and weave this into as many conversations mm. as possible. And being a podcaster, I mean, people probably assume that you, you talk a lot, but you're actually just in a lot of conversations. Mm. And my goal when I'm hosting your podcast is to only speak for about a third of the time in the conversation. And that comes from Epictetus' mm. idea of, you know, we've got two ears and one mouth. So that's probably the right ratio of um, speaking to listening. I found the idea of being an active listener um, a really contemporary and modern useful form of leadership, which doesn't lend itself to those sorts of usual notions of the person who's speaking loudest or the most in the room is the one with authority or power. Well, I've learned a lot more by listening rather than having my mouth open. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I think you know, one of the well, – I'll give you this example. I think over uh, three royal commissions and a number of major – inquiries around the state. Uh, over the years, I think I've run consultations for over 8,000 people. My Lord. And that's often put, well, usually put me in the company of people who don't necessarily see the world the way I do. Hmm. So what that's asked me to do is to set aside ego and judgment and preconceived solutions. And it's put me in the company often of people I'm not going to agree with that I don't understand, may not trust, probably won't even like. <laughs> But that piece of work is about how do you how do you gather from people the idea of it? And this is a really simple question that I wouldn't have been able to ask at the beginning. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to ask this in a hierarchical role. And that is what does better look like? Mm. So uh, whilst I... Uh, ran those consultations and they were really well designed and carefully thought through, it was often the simple question of how do you take luck out of a broken system? How do you work with people who are telling you about the worst things that have ever happened to them and listen to their answers about what could have happened for, during, after, and what can systems learn from that experience? So uh, I think the sort of contemporary leadership that you're talking about is much more about how you lift lived experience into 
policy development mm. and designing programs and rethinking traditional models and how we go about doing our work. Yeah. And that's very different to what I would have experienced in my early days on my way to becoming a CEO. We're talking a long time ago. Yeah. Now. But it's certainly been part of the way in which I've tried to lead on the way through. So this isn't mm. so much about, uh, I guess, a personal, a building personal affection with the people necessarily that I'm working with, mm. but I'm deeply interested in their stories mm. and I'm deeply interested in the way that their stories can point to a better future. Yes, I love that. So it rings very true. And I think for me, um, one thing that I sort of think about quite often um, is something that um, former LV CEO um, Sally Hines said to me, and this is a quote from someone, I can't remember who said it, but strong views loosely held is yes. one that I, I very much like. And and that ability of contemporary and modern leaders to um, have the freedom to change their mind as circumstances and the facts dictate on the ground and living in such a modern world where everything's dynamic, um, strategy is made in an ever-changing environment. It used to sort of be that if you weren't a high-conviction leader who said, this is what I think and it's not going to change, you weren't sort of respected, whereas now I think we're flipping almost completely the other way. If you can't pivot where you need to and sort of, you know, separate yourself and your mm. egoic ideas, um, you're in struggle town. And also I think there probably was a time when I thought that the reward for good leadership was a promotion. Yeah. Now I think uh, the reward for successful leadership is that you listen and learn and that you realise you're always in the company of teachers as long as you're curious and you use your imagination and you want to come up with examples all the time mm. of how something can be improved. Yeah. How does all of this play into what we conceive of success in leadership today? Well, I think that's a really good example. Mm. I guess when I started, so it's been a long time since I've been inside an organisation. Uh, these days I freelance. Uh, and I guess one of the things that I've learned is that I thought that you had to know all the answers. I thought that you had to be an expert. I thought that you had to be the big person in the story and uh, as you said right at the beginning, that you are sitting in the big chair at the big table in the big room and that you would then dispense your wisdom. Yeah. And, of course, what I've learned about success, I think, is uh, much more to do with the way people's stories and their concept of what better looks like can find itself sticky in policy change and service redesign. So mm. with the three Royal Commissions, for example, I've stayed on after those commissions and worked with agencies and departments and groups of people and individuals to try to bring about the implementation of those recommendations. Yeah. And you see it all the time then. It's out of those stories you see a finer thing grow and that's incredibly rewarding and that's my personal definition of success. Yeah. And because I don't have any ego really, um, I don't need to be named or I don't need to be recognised or acknowledged in any of that. But just seeing the effect of taking someone's story into a space where they're able to tell that story with confidence and then that becomes policy or service redesign is mm. incredibly, it's just incredibly uh, successful from my point of view. Mm. And I guess that might be challenging for traditional notions of leadership. It sounds to me like a lot more of a community leadership lens. So for you, how does community leadership differ from, I suppose you could just say conventional leadership or some of the other models out there? Well, as soon as you leave the organisation, you realise that you're in the company of experts and teachers because it's their, it's their lived experience. Yes that can show you the way forward. And that's not you know, what it didn't feel like that for me when I was a CEO of an organisation. I thought we we had to be in charge of the knowledge and then we would dispense it. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that model. This other model is much more about ground up. 
Yep. It's much more about uh, listening to people who don't necessarily have an awful lot of expertise of the traditional sort, but who in their retelling of their circumstances give you the opportunity to build your judgment. So one of the interesting pieces of advice that I once had, because at the beginning I was really reluctant to get into, uh, I guess, running consultations around territory that I knew very little or next to nothing about. Yeah. And the advice to me was you simply need to have enough knowledge to give and take good advice. Mm. That's really that I didn't yeah, have to be an expert. That's in. brilliant. And I, I like what I like about that is, you know, for me, we often I'm in this WhatsApp group where we often have this conversation around like how much should we value expertise? And I think in certain situations, technical expertise absolutely should be valued. But in other situations, like listening to others and then bringing like no biases along and no ego along, maybe it's better to not be an expert and just be an impartial person who has really good listening expertise. And then you can better elevate the voices of those around you without judgment or kind of bias. I think that's very, very insightful. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've, I've tried to stay safe in that space by doing a couple of things, I think, routinely. In other words, people at the front line know an awful lot more than I do. Uh, people who run the data and do the research and think about this on a grand scale know much more than I do. Mm. Uh, the people inside organisations know much more than I do, except in each of those cases they see those issues through their perspective. Yeah. I guess the form of leadership that I'm talking about is the uh, the opportunity and the ability to put all that together. Mm. So that requires, I think, high levels of judgement and being able to back yourself. Yeah. And I think there are also some real enemies to bringing about change of the sort that I think sits at the end of the question of what does better look like. And I'm very alert to that. So I've learned a lot more about that over the last couple of years. I think, and, and I've learned on the job. I mean, I, I just think that I'm always going to be an apprentice in this. I mean, people seem to think I know something about leadership. And of course, every time I go out there, I realise how limited my knowledge is. But I, I think that there are, some, there are some hazards in the way that I'm describing leadership. And yeah. I'll just give you some insights as to what I think bring me up quite abruptly and just have, have me thinking about this a lot. One is that I work with lots and lots of people in communities around that question of what be, what does better look like and people don't always agree on what better looks like mm. and then they get stuck. So stuckness, which isn't really a word but sort of is now. We'll take it as a word for the purposes <laughs> of the conversation. It's a really interesting <laughs> leadership challenge. How, how do you move people? beyond or alongside situations where they can't agree with each other about what better would look like, what mm. an improvement would actually consist of. Yep. And many decisions for many leaders always involve a decision that will cost somebody something that they value. So for many leaders, that means that I don't want to go there because it's very risky and it's uh, I'm going to attract um, protest and demonstrations, never mind vile social media. I'm going to get up. Uh, into personal trouble, um, uh, I have to deal with violence. Uh, why would I want to do that when it's just much safer to just stay in the place of stuckness, which is that I can tell people that I'm on the search, but somehow the quest never ends. Mm -hmm. So I'm very conscious of trying to move past that. That's not to say that I'm not susceptible to those some of those fears as well. But the, I think the other couple of issues that I see that I'm trying to be really alert to is that lots of conversations are based on self-interest, <laughs> which means short-termism. just means this is all about me and what's going to happen if I put my head up and better not do that because that'll hurt, so I won't do anything. I think 
Many leaders are frightened by backlash. They will lead a campaign. They'll be very, very brave until the heat starts to get too hot and they'll duck back down again. Uh, two other things that I think I've just seen in the last couple of weeks that they bother me enough for me to think about how I'm going to approach this. One is that I work a lot with groups, whether it's boards or councils or individuals or agencies, and uh, I'm just going to say that uh, poor ethical behaviour can, in lots of organisations and in lots of those settings, feel like it's normal. Mm. So how do you push past that? How do you how do you actually encourage uh, enough self reflection to go? Well, hang on a minute. This isn't this isn't okay. Yeah. And then of course the lives of whistleblowers are never the same. So there's all sorts of forces that work against leadership that yeah. tries to bring about change. It's fascinating three that you named. I sort of start in the the reverse order a little bit. So sometimes I wonder about like groups of people. And is it the cultural setting of the organisation that sort of creates that lack of ethical behaviour or promotes self-interest? Or is it more that, you know, it's a tipping point where more than half or something or more than a third of the people are quite self-interested in an aligned way that sort of muddies the waters and then creates the culture of that kind of unethical decision-making. Well, I think people are always interested in self-interest, yeah. so I don't think that ever gets really tracked. I mean, I'd like, to th- I'd like to think that we were much more, um, I guess, philanthropic in our endeavours and could only be thinking about other people all the time, but I don't, I don't think that's true. And I think for most groups, well, just about all the groups that I work with, whether it's a board or a council or a gathering of any sort, you're working with people that you didn't choose. That's right. So you have a team, in inverted commas, but you didn't actually have a say about who you're going to be working with. So, of course, in some organisations, people are then alarmed and go, oh, my God, the culture's unhealthy here. Well, I've got a different view. I've got the opposite view, which is, well, why should it be healthy when, when people gather into a situation or gather around an idea or to do the work? And they didn't choose each other. So, so this is a made thing rather yeah. than an assumed thing for me. Yeah, but I, I think it's interesting that a lot of places just don't do the work around how to improve that situation. So there's sort of the like recognition that things could be better and that like, you know, in LV talk, diagnosing the problem. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we have a problem where we're not all really on the same team like non-inverted commerce, like how do we get on the same team? And I think that should be the starting point for so many more conversations around both executive teams, boards and executive teams and boards together. I think that's absolutely right. It's never an assumed thing. Yeah. And we um, – oh, how many strategic plans have got values <laughs> sitting up the front <laughs> yeah. of them? And they're really uh, – they're not easy, but they are easier to come up with the wordsmithing uh, mm. and they've all got excellence or integrity. Collaboration. Or collaboration. Pretty popular. All of that. Mm. Um, so they've got the sort of hit parade of the main – but – but it's actually turning those words into people's actions yeah. and behaviours. And then here's the other thing. Uh, I think one of the real enemies of change that lots of leaders confront is just indifference. Yeah. Like you can't get people to care if they don't want to. That's right. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you, when you can't insist, how, how do you encourage ethical behaviour? When And I'm, I'm one of the standard answers is, well, you have more laws, you have more regulations, you have more rules, and then you punish any breach. doesn't work, I don't think. Well, this is what we do, though. This yeah, is a very, in society. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, so we have more and more and more don't do this signs that have got crosses through them because mm. you, um, you're told what not to do. Well, that's quite different to people choosing the behaviours that would encourage the best in each other. Mm. Well, it sounds very 
daggy old-fashioned and far-fetched, but I actually believe that that is a very, very possible thing to do. Mm. And one of the things I've seen, particularly when I've worked with um, communities going through really significant disasters or really significant problems, is that you can gather people together around a crisis, yeah. in inverted commas, but the challenge for me is how do you continue that That's level right. of collaboration when the crisis feels as if it's no longer oh, the driving behaviour. You're really singing to my gospel. I mean, <laughs> just at a conference recently, I was discussing with um, a, a lady who was doing some terrific work in disaster relief care. Then, of course, um, you know, the money's flowing, the taps are on, everyone wants sure. to get on board and support it. But then another disaster happens and it's a year later and nothing has yet been really solved. They're, they're working on it, but the attention just shifts somewhere else. And I think over the last couple of years, uh, every time I've talked to somebody about management, it's always felt like crisis management. <laughs> it's felt <laughs> like we're sort of in a chronic state of emergency. Yeah. And then after a while, we, we become inured to that. Hmm. So we've got an ethics crisis now, do we? I mean, yeah, okay, but that's sort of down the list of another six crises that I'm already thinking about. So as soon as you put in the word crisis, you, you do get people's attention yes. and you do get a sense of alarm, but it's very hard to sustain that over a long period of time. Yeah. When crises don't, capital C crises don't seem to come along in kind of neat waves so that you can deal with one, mm. put that one aside, then another, then another, then another. And of course, what we've felt over the last couple of years is just rolling waves of one difficulty after another without us having enough opportunity to really catch our breath and then move on to the next. So I find um, working in the health sector, uh, the words care-worn really, really important and have taught me a lot that you can be worn down by caring. Oh, care-worn, yep. caring too yep. much yep. or for too long. Yeah, compassion fatigue, sort of sim oh, similar pro word. Probably, yep. probably. So there, there is something about, and this is what I meant about indifference in a way, not because people don't care, but after a while, uh, caring is very costly. It's very tiring. It's seriously tiring. So Emotional you, depletion. Well, in this form of leadership that mm. I'm talking about, which isn't about following orders necessarily, yep. this yep. is much more about where do I find the reserves? How do I yeah. come back again? Oh, and what about how do I keep learning mm. out of this so that I can keep improving? So I, I think one of its one of the perils of one of the perils, uh, one of the constraints of the sort of leadership that I'm talking about, is what does success look like? Yes. When and the difficult question for me has been too because. This is an early Leadership Vic story. Um, thought I could change the world or change a really big place and have learned much more that, you know, sometimes being a really good person in someone else's life is about it. That's pretty massive for me. <laughs> I can tell you as somebody um, fast approaching their 40s and I'm the person who um, – I like to think that my role models and mentors have mainly been like my family and my podcast mm -hmm. guests, mm -hmm. uh, more or less, and I've never really had like until now um, a mentor. But the role that a mentor can play in one's life to sort of be there and just listen and give advice and stuff, I mean, it's really groundbreaking to have that opportunity now this year. And it's sort of, I think, what you're describing, the role that you might have played in touching other people's lives, you might not realise how impactful that is. I think it works in reverse too. I think I've probably got dozens of mentors. They just don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's true. I mean, I, I do have, I do take on, you know, capital yeah, mentoring role, yep. particularly through LV Association. Yep. So I still do that. It's probably, I don't know that I'm a very good mentor, but I, I can be in conversations with people that, that maybe firm up their strategy. Yeah. Maybe it's more about that. Yeah. But I'm also, um, 
always looking around for who's doing what really well. And I wonder, how did they do that? So I'm a constant student as far as that's concerned. And so if I don't know an awful lot about leadership, a bit about leadership, but if I don't know that much about it, I'm always surrounded by people who do because Mm. even if they're not overtly aware of it, they practice it all the time. Yeah. So what can I pick up and learn and apply and test and try to improve? Because I'm looking at other really knockout examples of leadership often from people who are quite unconscious of their leadership. Yeah, and I like to, I think, you know, like that unconsciousness or that humility around just doing that well is sort of masks it sometimes and sometimes it's hard to sort of see see it for what it is. I wonder what are some um, examples that you've seen that have impressed you in terms of leadership in recent times or people, organisations? Uh, let's see. Um, I'll give you a couple of negative examples to begin with because mm. they've got huge sort Perfect. of – uh, continuity. Um, so my first associations with leadership, Vic, were back in the early 90s. And I'll go back even further than that. This is a very daggy personal story, but you're very welcome to elide <laughs> later on. Um, I I remember at primary school, this is how daggy this story is, um, it was not uncommon at that stage for some kids to have polio. We don't see it now. Vax has mm. been extraordinary in making sure that we don't have to think about polio quite so much anymore. But there was a student, a peer, I can't remember what grade, uh, but we used to describe, we, yeah, a common description was that these kids were walking on sticks. They had calipers and we didn't have better language for it. And there were kids in the playground that were really super nasty to her, uh, calling names and making fun of and making small of her circumstances. And I remember being completely and utterly, totally enraged for reasons I can't even – I wish I could say to you that I had this extraordinary upbringing that (laughs) meant that I would be appalled. Um, But I just remember being um, really horrified on her behalf. And what I would say to the smally Chris now is uh, go to her and tell her that not everybody feels that way offer her friendship and support of a sort that might have made that bad day into a better day. But what the smally Chris wouldn't have done at that stage is actually go to the teachers and say, you know what, we can do a bigger thing here. This isn't just one story or Mm. one incident. This is about a bigger life and we can all contribute to this. And fast forward to uh, last weekend at a suburban footy match, little kids playing footy, and I saw a sign-up that, talked about behaviours that umpires ought to expect and it had dot points on it like umpires are human too. Be nice to umpires. Do not spit at umpires. So I went through this list and I actually saw the umpires come off the field and um, they had with them somebody, uh, someone wearing a, a jacket that had um, umpire escort on it. I thought, what, what's that? What, what's an umpire? Like whoever... What is that? Mm. I need to realise that some of the things that I was describing to you about primary school a long time ago and people's uh, inability to be kind or considerate or apply empathy or just choose to be okay is for many people still as remote now as it was when I was a smallie. Mm. So I get lots of examples of thinking, hmm, our work here is not done. And there's something going on here that's a really significant issue and I think it's a problem and I think it's a challenge 
And I'm also not going to just sit back and go, yeah, you know, this is just the way the species runs mm. and this is just fate. Yeah, we just have to accept that when we get to choose, many of us, what, choose to be awful to other people because this is a good thing. And then and not everybody's going to agree with this, but it really is only a footy game. Mm. And so having parents screaming at each other uh, having kids be uh, really vile to each other during the game and then threatening the umpire is for me quite an extraordinary example of how uh, that level of self-awareness and reflection and speaking up and intervening when you see the, for me, the really painful anger and violence that's right on the surface of some behaviour. So that's that, that's me on a bad day. Uh, on a good day, I see lots and lots... I see, see thousands of examples right across Victoria. Like every time I'm working with a group of people, of people who choose kindness, of people who choose to teach each other, of people who offer support when they don't have to, of people who volunteer, of people who uh, provide support and advice and never get paid, never get named, uh, never get asked, but they simply choose to step forward. So I guess in this conversation, those people that um, I find remarkable are those that bring about change from within the community and how they work really hard against all odds and against criticism and against all the negative voices and the naysayers, but still try to pursue a better and a finer thing mm. and through their efforts go about doing that. So I'm blessed because I'm, I'm in the company of, um, of people who do that all the time, there's not a week goes by when I'm not awestruck by people who, despite being careworn, mm. will still turn up at five minutes to midnight and just push past the time when they should have gone home. Yeah, but they're going to stay anyway. Yeah, I love that. I, I love I love to see persistence for for a community cause that is around justice um, and not around self interest, but a dogged persistence to mm. make social change. Mm. One of my favourite examples, um, I don't normally do this, but I'll just call out sure. an individual who was on the podcast recently, Tani Bridson, Dr. Tani Bridson, who's the Young Australian of the Year mm. uh, from Queensland. Um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, she realised, you know, being a, a psychiatry reg, how burnt out a lot of doctors and caregivers were, and also realised the lack of peer support that was happening for doctors. So th these doctors were being ground down to the bone during COVID mm. um, and not having anyone to talk to or ways to cope. And a lot of them were really um, on the brink. Many of them um, had some very unfortunate uh, things happen to them um, as a result of that pressure cooker environment. So Tani, recognising this, um, led a major campaign to get peer support um, program going for doctors and medical professionals. And um, that's been funded now and sort of is rolled out in hospitals today and it's got even rooms at Cabrini in Boston weekend. Yeah, it's just, you know, young lady, must be, you know, mid-20s, um, already got a full-time job, psych registrar origin, Unimel, but very busy, um, but just has this dogged determination. And you listen to that episode and you listen to the against all odds sort of push in that voice. And I think, I think we need these kinds of heroes um, today. Well, the example that you've just given suggests that here's somebody who will do that without being asked. Yes, you see, that's precisely. a very special thing for me in that yep. story that, okay, could be part of the job, but not really. Yeah. So there's somebody who will just stretch out over and above their own tiredness and exhaustion and tick offedness yeah. yep. and still look for something that's better, mm. which is, I think, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, that uh, 
what would better look like? Mm. And can you make a finer thing of this? And is there some small, tiny step towards improvement that you can encourage? Yeah. And that's, I think, probably been a bigger measure of success for me these days, not necessarily the grand sweeping changes, but the one small step that just encourages people to take another yeah. and another and basically to put myself out of work so that I don't have people <laughs> relying on me to come up with the ideas, but to yeah. offer enough. Uh, I occasionally say to a Williamson group, you've probably heard me say this, <laughs> that I think some of the work of leadership is about giving people confidence and hope. Oh, 100%. And like, you know, for me, when we talked about what does success look like for a leader today, um, myself, you know, running a team of um, eight people at my work, I just think about success being leaving a legacy behind where they all have the competence and capabilities to be better leaders and to step into my role if they need to and create succession opportunities mm. and continuity of that kind of culture that we've created in that team. Of course. Um, it's about, you know, the reward for me is really about seeing other people um, develop leadership skills and capabilities, but also like flourish as human beings. Like I want to, I want them to be healthy. I want them to be happy. I want them to enjoy their work, and maybe in ways leadership's changed in that sense because maybe I feel like these are things that old managers or leaders back in the day weren't as interested in. But like there is a more of a similarity now, probably with like caregiving or support yes. environments, because when you're thinking about an orientation of human flourishing or growth, you really are thinking about giving that emotional self and kind of giving a lot of your emotion to support leadership development also can be depleting. Well, leadership is always about emotions. Yeah. It's always about how people feel. Yep. It's always about how they feel when they leave you. Mm. And it is a bit cliched, but people will often forget what you've said, but they don't forget how you made them feel. It's my favourite quote, Chris. Yeah. So happy you said that. Yeah. So there is I something- I live by that one. Well, and there's something special about being able to create those feelings. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I have to believe that leadership development is possible. Yeah. These aren't necessarily born with innate skills and you just roll them out when duty calls. This is much more about, uh, for me, I think it is self-awareness. It's understanding the impact that you can have on people. It's knowing when to be quiet and listen. Uh, it's also, for me, about understanding when you're going to be asking people to bring about change that they don't want that they're not ready for, that mm. they don't have the skills for, but that are inevitable. And I don't need to go through the list, but if you think about climate change and some of the really significant issues that we have in the community around mental health and uh, a decent place to live, uh, it's not as if we can just roll out the future and just make sure that everybody is happy. In fact, happiness is probably a bit overrated. Mm. If that's a measure totally of, agree. Of, of leadership. Yep. So, uh, but it is about bringing something forward that is better than what went before it, mm. but without necessarily doing that through appeasement or trying to make everybody happy, which I learned a very long time ago, is um, really not possible. <laughs> yeah. One thing I reflect on when I think about that is the maxim that it's much more important um, that people respect you than they like mm. you um, and not respect- no, no, I'll take that. Not respect in the top-down authoritarian sense, but- um, if people like you first, um, they may not ever respect you. They might just play at liking you. 
if people respect you first, they can grow to like you, and that's very possible and to have both. So what, one thing I sort of think is um, is sort of important in that is sort of just, just that mutual respect and growing that at a really kind of organic level with people and sort of helps to have that trust built in as well. And, you know, I think that's a way that you – we often hear this thing like you can't be friends with your employees or your team members. You, I think you absolutely can and you should be. <laughs> I mean, how could you kind of expect people to follow you or, you know, get on board with what you're doing if you can't have a laugh with them, they can't trust you, you don't trust them, sort of just all these kind of things just don't work. Mm. And at the same time, I think I absolutely agree with what you said. And at the same time, I think if I did the work that I do expecting or hoping or working towards other people's approval, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. That's that's spot on. And I think, yeah, maybe it's more about – the, I think when you're quite junior in your career, you're always seeking approval because you're, you're taught that that's what um, success is, like gaining the approval mm. of your superiors. But I sort of think more now that um, good leadership is about also courage and conviction. So sort of having the opportunity to say, look, I know you're senior to me. I know you're my CEO or I know you're my, my chair, but I fundamentally disagree with what you're saying because of X, Y, Z. Um, respectfully, you know, I, I think here's an alternative that maybe we should look at. And, and like, that's very risky, but I think it's valued in the right places. And that's the opposite to indifference. Yeah. In other words, if I just think, oh, look, it was never going to get better anyway. Yeah. Plus fate says that we're fairly flawed as a species. We're always going to stuff up. There's always going to be a couple of corrupt people at the organisation. Um, oh, really somebody else will take care of all of this. Uh, that's one way in which a lot of people live their lives, and I'm not judging that. I'm, I can see why people choose that path. But there's other path, the one that you've described, that requires courage, uh, can cost you something. Yeah. Something of value, something of an investment beyond uh, just doing the job. Yeah. It can cost you a lot. Oh, absolutely. And so I think you're right about uh the friendly workplace, the healthy workplace. And I think a lot of that's to do too with thinking about your own well-being and how you stay safe in that space that uses up an awful lot of courage. And if I was interviewing mm. you, I'd be asking you <laughs> how you go how you go about doing that. Mm. But since you're not since I'm not doing You can ask me that. I mean I'm happy to talk well, about Well tell it. me about that. Well I think so I'm a practicing stoic is the first thing to yep. say. So courage is one of the four virtues for me mm-hmm. that I work on and um for me to not show courage in the organisational setting is inconsistent with my character. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's the highest order. It's a very high order personal priority. Um, acting inconsistent with who I believe myself to be is fundamentally mm-hmm. dangerous to me in my, my sense of being a good person mm-hmm. in this world. Um, so I hold it very highly alongside you know justice, um, uh, temperance um, and equity. So it is a core value. Um, and it does mean at times, uh, you know, putting forward opinions that are um, not necessarily agreed upon in the executive setting or the boardroom setting. But, um, and you do, you do sometimes bear the cost of that. But what I've found is that if you're in the right place, surrounded by the right people, mm. and particularly the ones that hired you, they probably know that about you and they probably value that in you. So I think, you know, it's more about culture fit. Um, if you can't be if, – if you are – if you believe yourself to be a courageous person but you can't be courageous in your work context, you might be in the wrong job. Mm. 
And for me, that's a realization where, you know, um, I'm careful about where I choose to work now because I know from my time in the public service, I couldn't be courageous. Uh, I was forced into a box of being meek and meager. And that's that, um, that not only doesn't bring out the best in me, it brings out the worst version of me. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It um, just reminds me so much that leadership is a choice. I think so. And that we end up being the sum of the choices that we make. So yeah. there's something really powerful, I think, in what you've just said. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, I'm going to confess and say that there are days when I've been in the company of people who have told me the worst things that have ever happened to them mm. and landed in my imagination in a way that I could not have anticipated. And there are stories in my head that I wish weren't there, but they yeah. are. Yep. And so there are some days, I will confess, when just getting to the end of the day feels like success. Well, that's yeah. courage too. Quite probably. Because that's a choice also. It you, is. You could just it, oh, no, absolutely. stay in bed. No, no, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And so I think, I think privileging your own well-being in, the, in between the teeth of what you've just been describing is a really important thing to do. I think it's a really significant mm. leadership attribute. And I think uh, if I go back to your earlier question about what does success look like, mm. sometimes success for me is about saying no. And yeah. that is I've done enough for today. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start running off the rails if I keep going. So I, I, that's when I say no. It's actually <laughs> when I withdraw and I, and I actually stop and I look for uh, a sanctuary. I try to get off the tools. Uh, I try to goof off and just find a space where I don't have to live in the heaviness of some of the stories that other people have put into my direction. And the other thing as a freelance, which is this is a this is delicious for me and it's often not available for a whole lot of other people, is that because I can say no, I can actually reflect on the lessons that I've just had. Mm. So I can create the tempo. Yeah. And so when I've even spoken to you, I know what I'll do later on this afternoon is I'll think very deeply about what you've said. And so there is well it is something yeah. about just being a constant learner yep. with the aim of not, oh, of course there's personal enrichment in that, but there'll be something there that I can use elsewhere. Mm. So it is about the generosity of, uh, can I say, a shopping around for oh, good yeah. ideas and yeah. great lessons yep. and moving those around to other people that may, may, might gain some benefit for it. If yeah. I was going to rush straight out of this conversation and bang into another and then another and then another, yeah. Chances are I would lose that opportunity. So, as I say, it's a delicious freedom to be a freelancer and to be able to say, uh, no, uh, enough at the moment. I need to go away and think and reflect and review and take notes and uh, draw pictures and think about the next time I'm with a group of people and how I might be able to use that and what happens when I convert it into my own kind of goofy mm. language around certain things. Will the story still hold? Mm. So I think there's for me there's something about just – coming away from the work from time to time and, gosh, there's, there's probably not a call that I get which isn't about can you help us do something and all of my instincts are about, yes, of course, where do I need to be and when. <laughs> so it actually, maybe you're right, maybe it does take a little courage to say, well, I can't do this. Yeah, I think right it, I sometimes think about it like trade-offs. So like mm. what's the opportunity cost of doing that and if, if it is that – I'm going to be exhausted um, yep. for the rest of that day and not be able to support my team. Maybe I shouldn't do it or my son or my wife. Or And so, like, 
you know, being being a someone said this great an outgoing introvert. Mm. That's what I am, and I only learned about this recently. Um, I do get depleted by um, people sometimes, and so you know, um, for me, I'll often you know, working with a big team and reporting up, down, across and whatever mm. um, can be tiresome. And I like to go for a run sometimes and just not talk to anyone. And sometimes I just like to say it's enough for the day and sure. go off and um, do the higher level conceptual work, which sure. is good. But I think one thing we do internally that I've started for our organisation, our team, is that everyone um, is mandated to spend at least half a day a week reflecting on oh, how they do things. That's clever. So, it's, look, it's taken from Google's one day a week of time to work on your own projects. But the difference being in a community setting, it's more about um, process innovation. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how you bring yourself to certain things and what you might do better. And it's led to profound change in how we do things and great innovations in our how team. How has it changed um, it means that instead of people feeling as though they're a passive part of a process-oriented team that just delivers to a whole bunch of people, there's room to bring creativity to generate ideas that make things work better, which is very exciting for people and very motivating. So we've had a number of changes happen in our team that people, like, I think it makes them really enjoy being in that team and coming to work. Um, so that's a big plus for me. Another thing to say is that a friend of mine who's a mental health social worker and I were talking the other day and just sort of we're both um, young dads to a degree and mm. um, just saying that everything's just moving too fast, like not just at work but in life and society. And I think we're going to call for a conscious move that everything just needs to slow down a yes. little bit. Well, uh, getting out of the hamster wheel occasionally is yeah. not a bad thing for the hamster. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's true. And it's um, uh, it's often really – so here's the enlivening thing. Sometimes when I spend time in the company of people who actually don't care too much about what I do, uh, don't know what I do, uh, not that interested in hearing me talk about it, um, for a moment there I think, well, how dare you? And then I think, well, you know what, this is a good thing. That, That's great. Uh, I have to keep rehearsing <laughs> or reliving or, you know, we're not up to season, you know, eight of a yeah. kind of long uh, drawn-out story here. Mm. And to be brought up abruptly by um, – a dog, a kid, a detective novel, a piece of music, uh, somebody who doesn't give a hoot and isn't interested in, who doesn't think that you're See, trying to be clever a lot, it's very hard work sometimes. Oh, cool. <laughs> damn exhausting. Cool. So, oh. um, so listening to your own uh, appetites and just other people who surround you and what they're prepared to offer you in not being engaged yeah. in the work that is very, very helpful. So this is a point of um, having a sanctuary, and I guess that's what I mean by that. It's it's just getting off the tools, yeah. uh, not continuing to think about the work, though that's a very hard thing for me so to do. Hard. It's so hard. hard. To, to separate from work oh, yeah. is the hardest thing, oh, yeah. especially when you're passionate about your work and you're an important job. It's just the, it's the hardest. And you when, have to do things like I find to the extreme to actually get there. Oh, no, I, look, I absolutely agree. And so sometimes uh, the best mentors for me are people who just want to peg their fingers and stuff them in their ears and say, look, just stop now, just stop. Yeah, yeah it's important, but tomorrow, yeah. go tomorrow. Let's push this to next week. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And one, one thing I like is when I get home from work um, and I often do the pickup of uh, my son Marlo and bring him home mm. and do dinner and put him to bed and uh, Louise, my wife, will get home and she she's one who likes to always talk about work and I like to not talk about work when I get home. So then I get to shift into listening mode, uh-huh. which I really like. Mm. And, and the minute I can stop talking about work and like I make a conscious choice, like when I leave the office, I start early and I finish a little bit early, I don't want to think or talk about work at all. 
Uh, that's just who I am. Um, but I do open the space that I like to give her the chance to talk about her work, and that frees me a little bit. So, Well, and I've also found that one of the great greatest uh, leadership lessons for me is the power of detachment. Yeah. And I know if I talk too long, too hard, too much about other people's circumstances, I start to I try to avoid this, appropriate their stories, which are not mine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just just parking the sentimentality in the, and, and what I say sometimes is that um, what matters more to me is ambition rather than pity. Yeah. You see, the schoolyard example that I gave you was filled with pity. Mm. And these days I think I am not beyond or above or away from the possibility of oh, pity might not be. Maybe it's compassion. Um, but I'm not too far away from that. But the bigger work for me is about ambition. How yes. do you improve the situation yeah. rather than feel sorry yeah, I love that. for people? That's, that's, I think, very consistent with where I'm at. I'd rather not spend the time. Like I think there's a space for empathy and compassion, but mm. I think – Empathetic action or compassion-driven action is so important. So that, like, there has to be a nexus between the feelings of despair and you know positive action. Otherwise, why bother having the experience? Exactly. And as um, a facilitator, my job is to is to gather the stories, not to overreach the stories and make them my own. Yeah. So there's a there's a really important. Um, I talk to leadership big people a lot about a thin slice of ice around the heart, and that is something about not appropriating other people's circumstances, mm. but caring enough to listen and to learn and to be supportive, but without appropriating it and making yeah. it my story. Yep. So there is something about trying to draw a line between the work and the after work, mm. even if that is at three o'clock in the morning. So insomniacs like me can get a lot more work done than they <laughs> probably should. <laughs> Chris, it's been so lovely having you. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Oh, Straight through Leadership Victoria. I'm pretty easy to find in, in those circumstances. And I've also realised that just about every meeting I go to these days has an alumni, has one of us somewhere sitting in, in the room. So it's very easy. So just, just get in touch with Leadership Victoria and do that. But it's been um, a pleasure and a privilege to be in your company. And I'm glad that you've asked me questions that have helped me grow and learn. So thank you very much. Well, I'll be reflecting on this on my run straight after this. So thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.